if it's very well drawn, but you disagree with the politics, then it stinks. On the other hand, if it's badly drawn, but you you agree wholeheartedly with whatever the point is, then it's a, a work of genius. It's hard. It's hard to say. And then there's also a humor. Not everybody thinks the same thing as fun. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Jeff Danziger has been skewering the powerful in his political cartoons since 1975. His cartoons have been a regular feature of the Barry Montpelier Times Argus and the Rutland Herald, and his wit and art have also appeared in the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and other publications. He is a winner of the 2006 Herblock Prize for editorial cartooning. Fans of Danziger's cartoons might be surprised to know that a source of his keen political sense and biting commentary was the four years that he served as an intelligence officer and linguist during the Vietnam War. In 1970, Danziger was awarded the Air Medal and, to his surprise, received the Bronze Star, although he says he doesn't know why. Vietnamese translators couldn't pronounce Danziger's name, so they came up with a nickname, Lieutenant Dangerous, which is the name of his new memoir. In 1971, following his service in Vietnam, Jeff Danziger taught English at U32 High School in Montpelier. He's also worked for the Christian Science Monitor and the New York Daily News. Jeff Danziger is now 78 and divides his time between Dummerston, Vermont, and New York City. He has two books out this year, In Mob We Trust is a book of his editorial cartoons from the Trump era, and Lieutenant Dangerous is a memoir about his time in Vietnam. I began by asking Danziger to share his story and what brought him to Vermont. In, uh, in, the, in the 60s, we came to Vermont because, first of all, the land was very cheap. We bought a house and an orchard and 50 acres in Plainfield, Vermont, and the uh, total price was $8,500. That's 100 with an H. And it was a beautiful place. It was up on top of a hill. It was uh, miserable in the wintertime, but for the rest of the year, it was, it, it, was, it was wonderful. And I began working, making films for General Electric in Burlington. And my wife was uh, teaching school in uh, St. Johnsbury. And we thought everything was going to be just fine. And then I received a draft notice. Uh, and from then on, everything went to hell. The, the Vietnam War was going on at the time. But because I was working for General Electric, uh, the factory in Burlington made aircraft machine guns. I don't, I don't know if many people remember. And if you were working for a defense contractor, uh, you got uh, a, uh, an exception from the draft. You were uh, a deferred. And then the deferment started to disappear because they needed more and more people in, in Vietnam. At one point, the army was uh, staffing their Vietnam um, efforts with 500 and over 500,000 uh, soldiers. And they needed more people, so they just sent out more draft people. I wasn't actually working on the lathe making machine guns. I was making movies for them. And so I, I, I was drafted by my draft board in, in New York. You were making movies for a machine gun maker. Uh, how does that work? Well, the, the, I didn't like the job so much, but I like the movie part of it. But I, I the the job came with a deferment from the from the draft, 
And that was uh, worth a great deal in those days. I did not want to go in the Army then hmm. or any time. What year was it that you were drafted? I was drafted in 67 uh, and uh, toward the toward the winter of 67 and I was uh, taken to uh, I was ordered to go to Fort Dix, New Jersey for infantry, infantry training basic training and while I was there I realized I didn't want to go into the infantry so you were allowed to sign up for additional time and for schools, separate schools, you could learn to be a, a medic, and that took another six months and so on. Or you could sign up, as I did, for the language school. And yeah. in my case, the language school, they, the Army has a very clever way of dealing with you. They say, would you like to go to the language school? Yes, you would. What language would you like? Would you like French? Would you like German, Russian, Turkish? And then you choose the one you want, and they say, you know, what about Vietnamese? Which meant that you were definitely going to go to Vietnam. And that's where they sent me. The benefit of the Vietnamese school was that it was a year long. And I thought it was going to be at the Presidio in Monterey and San Francisco. But in fact, it was in El Paso, Texas at Fort Bliss. So after basic training, I went down there, and that was about 68. Hmm. Um, did you learn Vietnamese? I did. I did learn Vietnamese. It was a 47-week course. It went on uh, six hours a day of class and two hours uh, every night of language lab. And I don't think I was very um, – you couldn't say that I spoke it like a native, but I spoke it. So when were you sent to Vietnam? Uh, after I finished the language school, I applied for and got a, a commission. So I went from being an enlisted guy to being a, a, a second lieutenant overnight. And then I had to go for some more training there. And since all of my training, the things that I signed up for were basically to delay uh, being shipped overseas, that finally failed toward the end. Uh, the Army, if you were down to less than a year old, they wouldn't send you overseas. But when I got down to just about a year, they uh, caught me and they sent, sent me. So walk me through what it's like to get off that plane in South Vietnam, where you were and where you were sent the smells, the sounds, what were your impressions? Uh, the planes were run by a separate company called, I think, Air America or Flying Tiger. So they weren't, they were just regular uh, commercial airliners. And when you got off the plane, the first thing that hit you was the heat. Uh, Saigon, which is where you landed at Tonsonu Air Base, is... Uh, equatorial and the heat is just just hits you like a complete wet blanket the thing i do remember getting off the plane was a sign that said you have a friend at the chase manhattan 
so that <laughs> that the, the Chase Manhattan Bank was there and you were welcome to open an account right there in Saigon. Maybe that was the most telling connection of, of all, uh, the fact that American banks uh, had planted their flag before a lot of American soldiers did. Right, yeah. Um, you and tell me about where you were assigned and what you did. I had a number of different assignments. What, what really I tried to uh, bring out in this um, in my new uh, memoir is that at that time, which was uh, in early 1970, the army itself was had realized that. A huge mistake had been made, and they didn't really know what to do with. Uh, they didn't want, know what to do with their basic mission. Their basic mission was to support the government of South Vietnam. But the government of South Vietnam, by that time, had been revealed as so crooked and so corrupt and so confused that there wasn't anything that we could do as advisors, and the big problem for the, at least for the U.S. Army, was trying to protect itself and to carry out missions to keep the, uh, the North Vietnamese. And by that time, if you remember, we started off fighting the Viet Cong, the, the rebel, the communist rebels. And by that time, the North Vietnamese Army had come down, and they were much better organized than the South Vietnamese Army. So for a while, I was assigned to the to help with the South Vietnamese Army. And then I was assigned to the 1st Air Cavalry Division, 1st Air Cavalry Division, and then to the 11th uh, Armored Cavalry, 11th CR, the Armored Cavalry, and then uh, for, for a time to an outfit called MACV, which was the Military Assistance Command in Vietnam. Uh, there were two uh, organizations. It was MACB, which was the advisors, and there was uh, USERV, which was the regular uh, American army there. And their problem there was to try to protect uh, ourselves. And to do so, they had to uh, uh, do operations, attack operations, patrols, and so on. Hmm. Um I'm going to just um, you write in your book that you think about Vietnam every single day. What is it that you think about? Well, it cost it cost me four years, almost four years out of my life. And one of the things I think about is how the Hell, did this happen? Not only to me, but to the to, but to the country. We were sent to do this uh, almost impossible task of defending a country. Well, if we want to take a look at the entire country of Vietnam, which is as as, as long north and south as California, and we were sent in with a maximum of maybe half half a million troops at one point, literally it cannot be done. We 
thought because we had been so successful in World War II that it was merely a, a case of American superiority and, and helicopters, of course, which were, were the big new uh, thing in, in, in mounting attacks, that we could just do it. And there was a feeling, and I, I, I think I shared it at the time, that as Americans, we were somehow superior to uh, Vietnamese who were largely rice farmers and uh, rubber, rubber plantation workers we wouldn't have any trouble doing that. And that uh, they're, at least in the part of the North Vietnamese and the, and the Chinese, we didn't have to, we were doing a good thing. We were getting rid of communism. Whereas, I, as I say in, in the book, uh, my father's quote was that the cure for communism was communism. If people wanted to be communists, let them do it for a while, and then they'll find out that it it doesn't it doesn't really work very well. In, a, in addition, okay, I'm sorry. No, keep going. Well, in addition, I didn't know where Vietnam was, and I think I would probably say ninety percent of Americans didn't know where Vietnam was. It was over there someplace, and the one thing that they surely didn't know about was that the northern border of the country of, of Vietnam, of North Vietnam, was China. And the idea that Mao Zedong or the Chinese communists in general were going to allow the United States of America to come into their country, into a country bordering them, and take over and be in control of that was ridiculous. Mao would not have allowed it. The Chinese would not have allowed it. And I also say, parenthetically, that the Chinese and the North Vietnamese had a long history of fighting each other. The Chinese are not appreciated in Southeast Asia, not in Cambodia, not in Laos, not in, not in Vietnam, not in Thailand. So, so uh, anybody who looked at the history of the area would have figured out that there was either going to be no victory or there was going to be one hell of a war with the Chinese. When and how did you figure out that the stated reason that you were sent there for, uh, you know, to establish democracy, defeat communism, uh, was not, in fact, what was happening on the ground? Well, I, I think... In, I was talking about the best book, nonfiction book to be written about the Vietnam War was a book called A Bright Shining Lie, written by a man named Neil Sheehan. Neil Sheehan had been a reporter for the New York Times, and he wrote this amazing book. It took him 10 years to write. And when the book came out in the 80s, he came around on a book tour and I was at the uh, Christian Science Monitor in Boston, and and he came around for a, a, to interview people at the paper. And since I was the only vet they had, they gave me the the job of interviewing him. And we had a nice long talk. He was a he was a brilliant man. He died just a few years ago. And I finally asked him, 
what do you think the, the Vietnam War meant? And he thought for a minute and he said, well, they'll never be able to do that again. Uh, uh, by which I think he meant that our government would never be able to mount a, uh, uh, an invasion of, a, of, a country, of another country <clears throat> as they did in, in Vietnam. And I, I said, you know, Mr. Sheehan, you're a smarter man than I am, but I think you're wrong. And unfortunately, it's turned out that our government has done that. It's done that in a variety of countries. Uh, I mean, we, we invade all sorts of people. And the only thing, the only reason I can think of why this is true is that politically it's important and also there's a great deal of money to be made. It wasn't just, we were talking about the, uh, the uh, sign, you have a friend at the Chase Manhattan just as you got off the plane in, in, in Saigon. There was that, but there was also things like the great contracting company in South Vietnam during the war was a firm called RMK. They built, uh, they built ports and roads and the, and the harbors in Saigon and, the, and uh, all sorts of buildings and warehouses and things. And they were partially owned by Lady Bird Johnson. And if that's not enough, I, I don't know what else. Here was the wife of the president uh, making money off the war that her husband, for whatever reason, was promulgating. I had I had never heard that. Um, of course, nowadays none of this would be shocking when you have you know in the Iraq War. Uh, um, Rumsfeld goes, or Cheney, who was the head of Halliburton, and Halliburton is assigned hundreds of millions of dollars in contracts, uh, you know, in the operation of the war, in the cleanup of the war. So um, this seems um, almost mundane on its level of corruption by today's scales. And of course, in the Trump era, you have his family making millions uh, off of their real estate and other business deals while he's president. But hearing that Lady Bird Johnson um, was part of the company that was getting Vietnam contracts, that's that's a new one and I guess a, a sign of things to come. Um, you know, backing, backing up to the original uh, moment of your deciding to go to Vietnam and that maybe an overstatement deciding to go it was you were conscripted um many people of course were leaving for canada or trying anything they possibly could uh you know some people were going uh, some people were volunteering to go and some people were leaving the country so why did you make the choice that you did that is a very good question and the question haunts me why didn't i just refuse i had uh been raised to be a, uh, a moderate, moderately obedient person. My father had served in the South Pacific in World War II. And when I asked him, you know, what should I do? He said, I, he said, I can't advise you. I can't tell you what to do. You pretty much have to come up with it, except that I think he thought the war was, was ridiculous and offered to help. 
but I wasn't that kind of person. I had been raised to do what I was told. So I did, and I didn't want to. But I will say, if you say, what, what, why do I think about every day? That's it. Why the hell did I do that? Why did any of us do that? Did you know anyone who was either signing up to be a conscientious objector or leaving the country? I didn't know anybody then, but I, as I was talking about in the, in the, in the book, I early on in my, in the basic training had a friend named John Stevenson. He was from Montana and he had gone to uh, Dartmouth uh, college and he turned 18 while he was in Hanover, New Hampshire. And he went down and registered. You had to do it when you were, when you turned 18. And then he went back to Montana after he graduated and the draft board in New Hampshire drafted him rather than draft one of their own local kids from, from Hanover. And I was drafted because my, my uh, draft board was in Peekskill, New York, and I had moved to Vermont and you had to tell them where you were and you could not change draft boards. So they would, they would draft people who had moved away and try to protect uh, the local kids, the local uh, young men. Uh, the draft itself was was so unfair and so awful. Um, but I didn't. I, I have to say, I did not realize then. I had a I had a general sense. Of it. In, in, the, in the meantime, I found out as we were just talking about Dick Cheney, who received four or maybe five deferments uh, from being drafted during that period. Um, is there an experience in Vietnam during the war that has really stayed with you in ways that may be troubling or or not? Uh, there was an instance which I... I, I uh, I used as a book title a few years ago where I was in a, a group of people and a colonel had stood up and was lecturing the, the press. And he said, he said that we, they should not report that the Vietnam war was a, a disaster and a failure because with American help and American money and American know-how Vietnam was going to, rise like a Tucson from its ashes. And somebody in the back of the room said, uh, Colonel, uh, get, the, get the right state, but the wrong bird. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we were, that's what we were doing. We were rising like a Tucson from its ashes. Were there combat experiences that have stayed with you? Uh, they were, there was a, a couple and, uh, uh, at one point I was given the, uh, I was given the, uh, assignment of some Vietnamese interpreters. I was supposedly an interpreter and we were out in the woods in the, in the, uh, in the forests. We were supposed to be talking to, uh, woodcutters and these guys were working all the way just just as they did every place else in the world cutting trees 
And then they, they left. And our interpreters, the guys I was with, said, well, they don't know anything. And, and, they, and they didn't know anything. And we, were, we had to stay there for another, well, another two days anyway. And I was, uh, I, I just, I was just, we were supposed to go out and, and try to find enemy, enemy units. And we didn't. We sat there and waited until we were extracted. And everybody was fine with that. We just had our own little separate piece. And I thought, well, you know, that's how, that's how we're going to uh, fight this thing. We're, we were not willing soldiers and we were we were not going to do what we were told i guess i guess the message the message to all of that is to young men who are draftable ages don't do anything you're told to do disobey everything were there consequences for disobeying no there were none yeah. and did you have any close calls you know, later on, I would—I don't know if you remember the the war record, but toward the end of in, in 1971, the army had decided that it was going to pull out. The government was decided that it was going to pull out, but it wanted to have one last destructive battle against the North Vietnamese, and they went to an area in the northern part of South Vietnam called Khaesan. Khaesan had previously been a place where the Marines had been trapped by the North Vietnamese Army and pretty much slaughtered. And we decided to go back into that area. And they decided that they would take the Arvins, the Army of the Republic of Vietnam, and they would go out there and have a hellish battle against the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which was this trail of armament and supplies that came down from North Vietnam. And they were going to, we were going to give the, the South Vietnamese Army a helicopter support. And at the last minute, I, I was sent up there because they wanted to have uh, interpreters. And at the last minute, the Congress of the United States pushed in a law which said that no U.S. soldiers could be on the ground. They could be in the air in helicopters, but they could not be on the ground. So we would take, by helicopter, we would bring in the South Vietnamese soldiers and we would deposit them on mountaintops. They didn't want to be there and they would hang on to the helicopters. They would refuse to get off. It was, it was a situation of, of, of such a mess and so out of control that you, you couldn't imagine that anybody had had any the helicopter pilots at that time faced a weapon no one seemed to have thought of, which was heat-seeking missiles. These were uh, Russian-manufactured heat-seeking missiles. And the missiles go up in the air, and they weren't good enough to go up and catch uh, jet aircraft, but they would find the uh, helicopter exhaust, and the helicopters went along maybe, maybe 200 miles an hour, 300 miles an hour. And the missile would fly into the rear of the uh, of the helicopter turbine exhaust. The helicopter pilots, most of these guys had been there for quite a while. They were brave enough. They had taken incredible chances, but they 
They just refused to do it. So here you had our last big battle um, in, in the northern part of South Vietnam being fought by ardent soldiers who didn't want to be there, who didn't want to get off the helicopters, helicopter pilots who in many cases refused to go. And this this was our our goodbye, uh, uh, our goodbye operation. Uh, and I was sent there with uh, a group of, I think, seven uh, Vietnamese interpreters. And we went north. And when we stopped at one place to uh, change helicopters, uh, they all left. They said, we're, we're not going any further north. And so I was left there by sort of by myself um, uh, to go the remaining leg of the journey north where I was supposed to do something. I don't know what. Were you aware when you were in Vietnam or even before that there was a growing anti-war movement in the U.S., that there were, you know, huge demonstrations? Um, how did, how much were you, did, did you know about that? I, I knew everything about it. There was no secret. I mean, when I was in college, people would stay in college or they would stay in in a graduate school because as long as you were a full student, you were not draftable. And so everybody knew about it. And then there was, you know, the, a, a whole series of not, not riots, but of protests in Washington, D.C. What did you think of that? when you were over there in Vietnam, what was your feeling about the anti-war movement? Well, I, I don't know exactly. I think soldiers make a side bet with themselves that they don't want to be branded as a coward. They don't want to be branded as a shirker or they don't want to be arrested, which you, which you could be for malingering. They don't want that on their record. And they, they make a side bet that they, they'll be there, but they're not going to get killed or hurt, they're not going to volunteer. And, you know, it's, plus by that time, by the time I got there, the thing had been going on for six or seven years. Well, longer than that, if you, if you, if you consider the uh, early days of, of the Viet Minh. I guess my objection is that it is not being taught now, not in schools not even in colleges. I began this book when I sat down with uh, some students, some of them, some Yale students, and we, I tried not to talk about it, especially to talk to younger people because it's boring. And they didn't know anything. And to their credit, they were curious. They were curious about why it happened and why there was a draft. And so now there isn't really an effective draft, so they really don't have to worry about it. What made you, 50 years after the war, decide to tell your story? And, and how did you have the details? Because you do write in, in a lot of, in great detail in your memoir. Um, how did you have that at your fingertips? It doesn't go away. I, and after a while, you get to, you know, when you're talking to Americans, they don't want to hear about they don't want to hear about disasters. They don't want to hear about wars that we lost. They don't want to hear about any of that stuff. They just want to hear about it. And even the even the 
movie versions of the Vietnam War, we usually wind up with we did we did we did the right thing. Well, we weren't doing the right thing. And if you've seen uh, the leading movies of, of, of Vietnam, or if you've read any of the books, you realize that none of them are are well attended movies, and they're they're just a little on the crazy side. How did your experience in Vietnam change you? Uh, and I, hope, I hope it did a great deal. I came back and I was a, a, a teacher, a high school teacher uh, in, uh, in East Montpelier. And I think that I was a better teacher because I regarded the kids in, in, my, in my school as some of the fortunate people in the world as opposed to, say, young uh, uh, Vietnamese kids who were born into an area where uh, the war had been going on forever. It didn't look like it was ever going to stop. And they were, you know, in a place where people were shooting at each other and explosions were going on all the time. And no, uh, their parents were, were sent off to, to, fathers were sent off to fight wars. So... I wasn't the, uh, which was a touchy-feely kind of teacher who worried about whether I was uh, uh, being friendly and and have. Uh, uh, I, no, I was. I wasn't a disciplinarian, but I, I wasn't a uh, psychology psychologically adept uh, teacher. Well, let's turn now to the part of your life that most people know you for, which is your work as an award-winning cartoonist. Um, your memoir, Lieutenant Dangerous, uh, as I mentioned earlier, was one of just two books that you came out with this year. The other one was called In Mob We Trust, Cartoons of the Trump Administration. So as a way of background, um, help us make the transition with you in your life from... Uh, Teacher and school teacher in East Montpelier to cartoonist. Well, I, I'd always been a fan of uh, cartooning. Uh, my father loved the work of Bill Malden and and going further back, uh, uh, Thomas Nast. And um, I uh, began doing cartoons for the uh, Times Argus as they as they switched from. Uh, letterpress to uh, to offset and that doesn't make a lot of difference to some people but newspapers previously had the expense of engraving if they wanted to put anything in that was a an original cartoon original artwork well with with offset that as that came along you didn't have to pay for anything you just did a paste up and the camera did the rest of the work so they started that and that was in about 1974 or five. And the issue in, in Vermont was that the Holiday Inn company wanted to put a Holiday Inn on the hill in back of the Capitol so that you would be able to step out on your the porch of your room in the Holiday Inn and look down on the Capitol of Vermont. Well, we thought this was a terrible idea, so I did some cartoons on it. And uh, I just kept, just kept, uh, kept on from there. It's a great deal of fun, in a way. Um, so it began with the Times Argus, um, 
were you artistic? Obviously, you were artistically inclined. Was this something you had been doing in some fashion uh, in your life? Yes, my uh, my parents were both artists. They both went to they met at uh, Cooper Union in New York. They were uh, very much New York kids, and there was all this uh, paper and art materials around the house. My mother was a, a portrait artist. And my father was an artist, but he was uh, in advertising for almost all his life. He had, he had six kids. He didn't have, he had to make some money. What is the secret to being a political cartoonist um, as differentiated from art, the other kinds of art that people do? Um, I don't know. And, you know, it's like, it's like songwriting. It's a combination of two things. It's you know, songwriting is music plus words and, and cartooning is words plus artistry. And I don't know what the secret is. I guess the secret is to figure out who, who are the people out there that, and the editors out there who like cartoons. Not all of them do. Is cartoon, what, what has happened to political cartooning um, out in the world, in the world of online publications and all the various ways that the media landscape is changing? There are a lot of people that are doing it. I don't know if they're making any money doing it. Uh, but it, it, it is enjoyable. And if you, if you want to do something other than write about how bad things are, but if you want to show how, if you want to make fun of how bad things are, then, then you, you would try to draw and use some kind of metaphorical animal metaphors and going over, going over waterfalls and uh, sitting on top of kegs of dynamite and uh, driving off the cliff and so on. So those, all those met metaphors come to mind. And then this caricature, which is always a great deal of fun. You quote um, the famous H.L. Uh, Mencken, uh, the columnist and editor, saying, give me a good cartoonist and I can throw out half the editorial staff. Um, <laughs> do you agree with that? Well, for a long time, the, the uh, Chicago Tribune used to put a uh, cartoon on their front page. And the reason they did it was that uh, the... Uh, People in Chicago were from all sorts of countries and spoke all different languages and perhaps couldn't understand the great uh, the, the, the columns that were talking about some kind of political analysis, but they could understand a, they could understand a cartoon. I have a friend now who is a cartoonist in uh, Burkina Faso, which is a, uh, uh, in uh, West Africa, and he said he, he said that in his country there are something like 60 languages. Uh, half of them aren't written languages. So they put his cartoon on, on the front page of, of his newspaper every day. What is the magic to a good political cartoon? Uh, that would depend on whether you agree with the politics that it's coming out or not. If it's very well drawn, but you disagree with the politics, then it stinks. On the other hand, if it's badly drawn, but you, you agree wholeheartedly with whatever the point is, then it's a, a work of genius. It's, it's, hard, it's hard to say. And then there's also a humor. Not everybody thinks the same thing is funny. 
some things uh, lately, what they would call uh, political correctness has kind of taken hold and made a great many subjects. Uh, they're not things that we are allowed or encouraged to laugh at. And I'm, I agree with a good deal of political correctness. Uh, it just gets in the way of sometimes of what you want to draw. Have you gotten into trouble uh, satiring things uh, and that were deemed too politically incorrect? You don't get into trouble in the United States very much because essentially in the United States, nobody nobody cares except for a small fringe of, of uh, loonies out there. But in other parts of the world, you get you get arrested and you get jailed and we have a an organization that tries to point out when people in, uh, in well in China, where uh, cartoons are are very much limited, and if they go overboard, they just they, the police come and throw them in jail. In Russia and in Saudi Arabia and uh, other countries, you can get into serious trouble by uh, lampooning them or making fun of them something like that. I would think that, um, you know, sensitivities are much higher now about caricaturing somebody's physical attributes um, or the way they're depicted in some way. Has that been a challenge for you? Yes. Yeah, it has. I, I My stuff is distributed by the Washington Post uh, Writers Group, which is a syndicate. And the editor there will be very careful to make sure that I haven't drawn somebody uh, as uh, something about their physical uh, attributes, whether they're fat or whether they're uh, anything of that nature. We have to watch out for that, and we have to watch out for uh, 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 racial and and uh, and religious things. You would think that we were past uh, uh, religious issues, but we're not. So your new book about uh, that has your cartoons of the Trump era in Mob We Trust, what was, uh, was the Trump presidency, uh, I would think kind of, I mean, at least for late night TV, it was, uh, has been the golden era of political comedy. Um, did you find that? Uh, yeah, we. Uh, um, it used to be a very famous cartoonist in the Los Angeles Times, Paul Conrad. He was asked what what happened when how he felt when when Nixon Nixon quit, and he said, "I I wept because he had made <laughs> he had made wonderful wonderful fun of Nixon." Uh, the Nick the Trump administration is, as many people will tell you, is not over yet. And he continues to go on. He's uh, attacked all of his friends. And if you want to uh, you go through his lo various loyalties, he's, he's still at it. I, I think he has turned himself into a laugh track, but uh, not, not according to everybody. Um, is he still the subject of your current cartoons? Oh, sure. Yeah, we've done a, a. I have a cartoon for tomorrow of somebody stringing a a, a police a do not cross 
ribbon around uh, Trump because they, they're now trying to come down and uh, and uh, he will face charges. He will face some sort of indictment. It's a little bit late because most people have made up their minds about Trump. Um, you open uh, your book in Mob We Trust with uh, another quote from Mencken uh, in which you write that um, it remains true that readers of papers and screens appreciate cartoons and look for them expecting some relaxation from the threatening nature of the news, laughing during that sinking feeling that democracy itself is being led to slaughter. Do you see yourself as offering kind of an antidote to some of the grimness and at times truly frightening aspects of the news. Well, we, uh, that's true. And the, and the, it's, it's always questionable to quote Mencken because he, he said things you agree with, but then you turn the page and he said a lot of things that nobody could agree with. We had a, a movie came out a little while ago, a French picture about cartoonists around the world. Um, I was the, uh, I was the American and the, and the movie brought up, brought out the, uh, the, the things that a great many uh, cartoonists in other countries face. And I, we here in this country don't have that problem at all. We're, we're, our problem is trying to get people to pay attention. Is political cartooning um, kind of on, you know, so many aspects of traditional journalism are on life support. Is that true of political cartooning as well? It might be. Uh, I don't think anybody has, has ever made a great deal of money in political cartooning. And uh, there was a, a woman wrote me a letter a little while ago, and she said, well, my son wants to be a, a political cartoonist. Uh, do you have any advice for him? And I said, well, yes, he should get a job. He should get a, a, a job doing something else that pays. And then just do this. And she got mad at me. She said, well, that was very, that was very dispiriting. Are there still full-time political cartoonists on staff at, at Daily Papers? Uh, not many, no. no. Not many. I don't think this nationwide in this country there might be maybe 20 or 30 people who are actually paying their bills on it. How did the break come for you to go from the Barry Montpelier Times Argus to being nationally syndicated? Uh, I, I actually never did go. I still... I'm in that newspaper every almost every day, and a, with a Vermont cartoon in the Times Argus and the Rutland Herald uh, on Sunday. So I've been with the Rutland Herald uh, for I think 40, 46 years, which has got to be some kind of record somewhere. I don't have to call up the. Uh, the people at uh, the Guinness Book of Records to see if I qualify. So in that long run of uh, cartooning uh, and writing, uh, what are you proudest of? I, th I, th I think what, what I'm proudest of is not the political cartoons because politics in Vermont are just fine. I mean, we, we are an ex Vermonters don't realize how extraordinarily fortunate they are to be living here but the uh the thing that is most fun to do is just the daily life in vermont uh, whether it's the weather or the, uh, or the you know 
trying to keep old houses together or trying to keep your car together, uh, trying to uh, go through you know, uh, town meeting politics and, and uh, to get to get along with everybody else, which, I mean, I think Vermont's the best state in the country to live in. I wouldn't live any place else. And I have lived in a lot of other places. So I guess trying to make that make that point that folks, you know, you you have it good. Don't don't uh, don't sell it short. Okay, well, Jeff Danziger, I want to thank you for joining us on the Vermont Conversation. Okay. Jeff Danziger is an award-winning political cartoonist who is syndicated by the Washington Post Writers Group. His new memoir is called Lieutenant Dangerous.